Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Cardiology Trials podcast. This is Mohamed Rozia joined by Andrew Foy and John Mandrulla. In today's episode, we will be discussing two trials in patients with acute myocardial infarction, the DGAMI trial and the FRISCI trial. We'll start by talking about the, the DGAMI trial, which was published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology in 1995. The DGAMI trial sought to test the hypothesis that rapid improvement of metabolic control in diabetic patients with acute myocardial infarction by means of insulin infusion would decrease early mortality. Patients included if they were admitted with suspected acute myocardial infarction with a blood glucose level more than 198 with or without a previous history of diabetes. Patients randomized to insulin therapy were started on insulin infusion to achieve normal glycemia for at least 24 hours. Subcutaneous administration of insulin was given immediately after cessation of the infusion. Controlled patients were treated according to the standard coronary care unit practice and did not receive insulin unless it was deemed clinically indicated. The primary endpoint was all-cause mortality at three months. The trial enrolled 306 patients to the intervention group and 314 to the control group. The blood glucose level was significantly lower in the insulin group 24 hours after randomization, 173 versus 211. Hypoglycemia during insulin infusion occurred in 15% of patients in the intervention group and none in the control group. At three months, Insulin treatment did not significantly reduce the primary endpoint of mortality compared to controls, 12.4% versus 15.6%. However, the one-year mortality, which was not the primary endpoint, was significantly lower, 18.6% versus 26.1%, with a p-value of 0.03. Next, we'll talk about the Frisky trial, which was published in The Lancet in 1996. The Frisky trial sought to test the hypothesis that subcutaneous low molecular weight heparin in combination with aspirin reduces death and new cardiac events in patients with unstable angina or non-ST elevation myocardial infarction. Patients had to be men older than 40 years and women at least one year after menopause admitted to the hospital for chest pain within the previous 72 hours and found to have unstable angina or non-ST elevation myocardial infarction. The treatment protocol was started as soon as possible after ad admission. During the first six days, the acute phase, deltiparin or a placebo was injected. There was then a home treatment phase. For the next 35 to 45 days at home, patients received deltiparin or a placebo. 
Patients stayed in the hospital during the acute phase for at least five days, and on day five to eight were discharged with the lower home dose. The primary endpoint was the rate of death and new myocardial infarction during the first six days. The trial enrolled 757 patients in the placebo group and 741 patients in the deltiparin group. At six days, deltiparin significantly reduced the occurrence of the primary endpoint, relative risk 0.37, absolute values 1.8% versus 4.8%, which was driven by myocardial infarction. There was no difference in death between the groups, 0.9% versus 1.1%. Minor bleeding events were much more common in the deltiparin group, 8.2% versus 0.3%. At 40 days and 150 days, differences between the groups were less pronounced for the primary endpoint, and the results which were in favor of deltiparin were not statistically significant. Okay, so now I'm gonna pass the mic to Drew and uh, John to tell us about the teaching point, and we'll start by the DGAMI trial. So Andrew, what do you think, uh, uh, what do you think the main teaching points are from Dagami? I guess I think there's two uh, main teaching points to Dagami. The first one involves the importance of, of accurate event rate estimates when you're um, calculating sample size um, for these trials. In the case of Dagami, they had a really sort of high estimate of what they thought the uh, mortality rate would be, and in terms of putting it in context with the trials that we've reviewed up to this point, it's hard for me to understand how they would have necessarily estimated a 35% mortality rate at three months, and then they they uh, they wanted to detect a 30% reduction. So that's very aggressive and and ultimately what it led to was a very sort of underpowered trial because the event rate for the primary endpoint um, ended up uh, only being I think it was in the ballpark of uh, 15%, 15%, 16% in the um, control group. So the trial ended up being severely underpowered uh, and really makes it hard to uh, get a lot of useful information out of a study like that. Ultimately, the primary endpoint um, was negative. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, the authors ended up spinning it quite a bit to uh, suggest that um, there was a reduction here because the one-year mortality, which was not the primary endpoint, did end up being significantly lower, but even the one-year event rates were much lower than what they thought the three-month event rates were going to be. So I don't think, um, I think it's a good lesson in terms of the importance of, of event rate estimates uh, in these clinical trials and how that affects the final results. Um, and then, as I mentioned, I think they really 
spun these results to suggest a benefit when we have no idea whether this practice is beneficial or not. Um, but then the other thing that I thought was was interesting and not a lot of attention was paid to was the significant harm signal in the trial um, for hypoglycemia. We know that's a, a serious adverse event when it occurs. And, um, you know, it occurred in 15% of patients in the uh, in the treatment group, none in the control group. Um, and this was in the context of a clinical trial environment. So you can imagine that would probably be twice twice as high or more if it was not in the context of a clinical trial, but, but people were still trying to sort of um, administer an intervention like this. So um, I guess those are my two big takeaways from this. This will not be the only trial of sort of um, intensive glucose monitoring that we that we review, but ultimately um, this is not an intervention that I am particularly bullish on as a provider. I think um, the benefits uh, are outweighed by by the risk, particularly you know when done in in real world practice. Um, and I guess I would just leave it there. Right. So the I'm. Just just looking at the primary endpoint right now, at three months, uh, the primary endpoint event rate was 12.4% versus 15.6%. So you're looking at a 3.2% absolute risk decrease with the therapy. But then it's interesting that many years ago in the journal JAG, they don't tell us what the p-value is. Maybe it was in the appendix, but they just p equals ns. Um, I'm not even sure there were confidence intervals. So it, it's just a 3.2% absolute risk decrease doesn't make significance. So that that just tells you that there's not enough patients and not enough events. And that's that's the underpowered point. Um, yeah, I mean, we're they're still in the ballpark of statistical noise there. Because um, recall, I mean, if they would have, if this trial would have been positive according to their estimates, it would have been a percentage of 35% in the control group, and it would have had to be reduced to a to 25% in the uh, in the treatment group. So they you would they would have needed a 10% absolute risk reduction essentially to meet their primary endpoint um, based on their estimates. And so uh, I mean, one their their overall event rate was less than half of their estimates and you know they had about a three percent absolute difference and they would have needed a ten percent difference anyway at that higher rate so i mean we're looking at statistical noise here frankly and, and then that's true for all the endpoints yeah and and then they have this one year mortality endpoint um which we say is not the primary endpoint as 18.6 versus 26.1 so what about, you know, seven to 8% absolute risk decrease, but it seems hard to believe that an intensive early insulin therapy would affect one year endpoint. So that's likely to be statistical noise. Also, even though that p-value calculated at 0.03, is that, is that correct thinking? Yeah. I mean, I would just view that as, as basically a, a, a second, an exploratory analysis, um, I would consider it hypothesis generating only. And and then, and then they go on to look 
get subgroups. So you have a very underpowered primary endpoint, but yet they're still bold enough to to look at subgroups, which are going to be even more underpowered, right? Because they're a fraction of the total general population. Yeah, that, it, yes, correct. And so we can really make very little of the of the subgroups as well. We, we can, but I did think it was interesting, um, and I did point this out, I, that this that the subgroup with the lowest um, event rate, sort of like the healthiest patients, seem to have the largest effect size difference or the largest benefit. Um, and because of some of the work that I do looking at treatment effect heterogeneity in relationship to to multimorbidity burden, um, I thought that was an interesting signal and one that would generally be hypothesized, meaning that in an intervention such as this, um, insulin infusion, where we know um, there is a significant harm from this, or you know, there's a significant uh, possibility of treatment-related harm, particularly from hypoglycemia, mm -hmm that in patients who are sicker, um, they are going to be, they're going to have a much higher sort of likelihood of experiencing treatment related harm. And so I would um, sort of hypothesize a priori that the sicker patients would actually do worse or derive the least benefit and the healthiest patients would be the ones most likely to derive a benefit. So it was sort of interesting to me to see the very large sort of differences in in those subgroups, according to like, you know, what their cardiovascular risk stratum was. But again, I mean, I think that's all in the realm of hypothesis generating um, stuff. And, you know, it, it wouldn't make me do or not do this intervention because of any of those subgroups. Right. So the, the other the other point I wanted to emphasize was the fact that we've already discussed that the three month out uh, three month point and primary endpoint was p equals not significant, so declared clearly is not significantly different. But in Jack in 1995, the conclusions read that insulin uh, glucose infusion followed by multidose insulin improved long term prognosis in diabetic patients with acute MI. So this is a classic example of spin where they are um, where the language is distracting from the uh, the non-significant primary endpoint, which is to me uh, really problematic because a reader uh, reader of Jack in 1995 um, might think that this is a a strategy that they should do. Absolutely, I I think that. Out of all of the studies that we've looked at so far, this is the one where the results are spun the most in the manuscript, I would say, uh, as well as Capricorn, um, that that the results are spun the most. I mean, in this case, I mean, it, the trial was severely underpowered, but the primary endpoint was still negative. And it's sort of like, you know, really hard stop right there. Um, and so the spin in this is, uh, incredible. And, you know, you wonder 
um, is is this something that would still happen to this extent, or have has the clinical community gotten better with sort of interpretation of of medical research findings over the last fifteen or twenty years? I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I will will discover that. I mean, I was part of a paper a few years ago which looked at spin in the current cardiovascular literature and our our impression and our findings from the survey that we did was that there was still a fair amount of distraction from the non-significant primary endpoint in trials but this is especially this is especially glaring and you just you know you, you just you just wonder and here you know there doesn't here there's not even like an industry bias right so a lot of times it's because of the because of an a perceived industry or financial bias but this is just must be just some sort of in, sort of in, intellectual bias uh i i don't i can't explain why this is yeah so i actually i think that's really a, a, an interesting thing that you bring up and um i don't know if there's any industry bias here i'd have to go back to the main manuscript i mean presumably there's Plate, you know, there's companies that that make insulin, and but I don't, I don't know. I, I doubt that there was, but yeah, I mean, motivated reasoning by enthusiastic investigators, I think, is always um, a big issue, and it's something at at sort of like the heart of medical science, which is, it's really, I think, people that 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 do medical research tend to be enthusiastic for the interventions that they study. And so um, that that presents a strong bias, I, I think. Um, and and uh, yeah, I mean, I would just leave it at that. But I, I still know that from a contemporary standpoint, I mean, there's a lot of invest. Well, I don't want to say a lot, but there's clinical investigators, physician scientists who are very enthusiastic about the idea of studying sort of uh, intensive glycemic control in hospitalized patients. Uh, in fact, I mean, we even have um, a program at, at, at my institution where we get prompts through the computer system and alerts for hyper and hypoglycemia and the particular investigator has NIH grants. And, and basically these prompts are telling providers that you must lower blood sugar, even though the recommendations are not evidence-based. And, um, you know, but I, I could assure you that that investigator, if they ever have anything that's even remotely suggests a positive signal, I mean, you know, they will be inclined to, to publish that and try to, uh, to run with it. So, so yeah, I think enthusiasm on the part of, in, of investigators plays a big role in in these sorts of things what do you think uh dr ruzia you haven't said much yeah yeah i think that's i think those are great points you know one thing i mean we know lowering your blood sugar long term is helpful and when i have a patient at the hospital their blood sugar is 200 i do try to lower it now i think them you know what i think about is what's what's the best way to lower it without causing harm and should we use sub-Q insulin and monitor it closely or should we use insulin drip? And based on this trial, 
I don't see I need to use insulin drip on these people unless they have DKA or something else. But I do, I mean, lowering blood sugar long term does help. I think it's just how fast should we do it and what's the best way to do it? Uh, so I'm going to pre present maybe a controversial take here since we're on this topic. So I think lowering blood sugar long term is one matter. Lowering blood sugar in acutely ill patients is is something different, right? Because as far as the laws of biology go, I mean, um, stress hyperglycemia is sort of part of the body's uh, response to stress. And we know that in patients that have heart attacks, and I think it probably extends to patients who are critically ill in general, but specifically for patients who have heart attacks, that hyperglycemia occurs whether patients are diabetic or not. And the level of hyperglycemia relates to patients' prognosis because it's a marker of the, of the size of the infarction and the stress that's being placed on the, on the body. But if that is part of a protective response, why should it be automatically true that reducing it acutely improves outcomes? And I, I actually, there's a really interesting review paper in the critical care literature, and I don't have it at hand right now. And it's, it's, it's essentially a narrative review and editorial by two physicians who, who disagree with the premise of lowering hyperglyc acute hyperglycemia. And, and I actually would say that I probably side with that perspective, which is str if stress hyperglycemia is part of the body's protective response, why should we seek to lower it in the acute setting? And I, and I say that's sort of con consistent with the notion that if sinus tachycardia is part of the body's acute response, we don't try to lower it in the setting of acute illness. And so I don't disagree with the premise that we should that we should manage hyperglycemia over the long term, over the life of a patient. I'm very uncomfortable with managing hyperglycemia in the acute setting. Um, I don't stop my residents from doing it because I don't want to teach them things that are going to hurt them when they when they do their medicine boards, for example. But if it were left up to me. I would just simply ignore hyperglycemia in the acute setting um, unless it, a patient was in DKA. And I've, I don't think I've ever seen a patient go into DKA because of stress hyperglycemia from an acute MI. And well, can it, happen in, it can happen in diabetic patients, right? I mean, isn't that a... a a patient with underlying diabetes who has acute MI, can that tip them into a, a DKA? I think I remember that from a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, I guess it could, but um, I've, I've never seen it. I, I mean, again, in, if the stress hyperglycemia occurs independent of whether somebody has diabetes or not, why would, this, why would the hyperglycemia in itself tip somebody into DKA in that acute setting. I, I just don't know. Um, and again, I, I'm not saying that I would live with blood sugar in the five or 600 level, but I, you know, I frankly, that doesn't happen, right? I mean, I see it in the two or 300 level 
in a patient who has no clinical signs or symptoms of DKA or hyperosmolar syndrome. And I, my inclination is to frankly leave it alone. Um, but again, I don't interfere with what the internal medicine residents want to do in terms of managing it. But I, I always tell them less is more, you know, low, I always say, if you're going to do a sliding scale, do low dose as opposed to, to higher. I just, I, my, my bias is that this is an issue that should probably be not overly managed in the inpatient setting, especially in the first several days of, of an MI. And you're speaking specifically about AMI because there are other areas that this has been studied and I, I don't, I can't comment on those areas. I just not familiar with that literature, say in post post bypass surgery or post-op settings or those kinds of situations. I, so, yeah, I am speaking specifically in AMI, but I, I am, I guess I am speaking more broadly about stress induced hyperglycemia. And again, I, maybe as a, um, Maybe what we can do is post a link without necessarily a review of the article, because I just think it's a very interesting article. We can post a link to that article um, yeah. all, as a maybe a note in our Substack for readers if they're interested in in looking at it. I give it I give it to all of my the house staff teams when I'm on the acute service. I just think it's a, a, a quite a good article about stress induced hyperglycemia and sort of less versus more in terms of of managing it so do you dr ruse you said you what is sort of your threshold level is it is it 200 yeah usually usually my threshold is 200 but i think i agree to some of what you said about the stress induced hyperglycemia usually in the first day of my acute myocardial infarction when they are acutely sick i'm not too aggressive with lowering it but to me, second and third day when things are settling down and, you know, a uh, patient, uh, patient is doing better, I do try to reach a regimen where, because I'm thinking now of discharging them, so I do, I do want to reach a regimen where when they go home, I want to make sure their blood sugar is under control. But I think the night that they come to the hospital, usually I use a threshold of 200 or 250 and... If it's in that range, I try not to lower it that same night they get admitted until I make sure things are settled down and I'm controlling their acute illness. But do you think that the regimen that you established on day two or three is, is feasible in terms of, like, will it have any bearing whatsoever on their management of blood sugar when they go home? And they go back to their normal diet and their normal like medication regimen because we oftentimes hold a bunch of you know like anti-glycemic therapies also when patients come into the hospital no and that's true and it really depends on the patient i mean if someone comes to me and their a1c is 10 then i know whatever they were doing at home was not really working but if their a1c was let's say seven or something or around there and their blood sugar was a transiently high at the hospital. I will not. I will try not to change too much because I know whatever they were doing was likely working. So I think it does depend. I use the A1C to guide me on how the patient was doing in the past few months. 
Yeah. Yeah. That makes, I mean, and that's a, that's certainly a reasonable thing. Um, I think I'm more inclined to say this is an outpatient issue. Let it be dealt with in the outpatient setting, but. Um, yeah, I think one, the issue with the outpatient is sometimes the number of patients who don't come to clinic or they have, you know, issues with transportation or, I feel it's easier to try to control things when they are at the hospital, if we can, because the outpatient, not everyone has the same access to healthcare and medications and all of that stuff. I, I So I have a counter to that argument. If somebody has those limitations as an outpatient, they have bigger fish to fry. And I think there's some hubris in thinking you can figure it all out in the hospital setting. But I, but... I've heard that argument is used a lot also when it comes to initiation of goal-directed therapies and things like that. So I, I'm not saying that that's a wrong argument, but I, I think that there's there's another side to that. And I don't know which one is right. And I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here. And that's true. I think my thinking when I do this is if I know they will have issues with outpatient follow-up and medications, and for example, having enough insurance coverage, uh, at least where I am now, where I work, we have more resources in patients to have a social worker talk to them, find resources for them. In the clinic, I don't have the same resources to help them out if they come to my clinic. So I try to use these resources because they are more available to me at the hospital Sure. Uh, to do that. So that's uh, that's a great point. And I wanted to mention something uh, as well about the sample size. I know we are switching topics now, but the sample size in the in the paper in Jack, the investigator cite a paper from uh, Sweden where patients with diabetes who had myocardial infarction, the three-month mortality rate was 35%. So that's what they used to calculate their sample size. Uh, and that's a huge difference than the mortality rate we saw in the trial. So to me, that's, that shows how selective we are in our trial enrollment. Uh, because, I mean, they use the study that has 35% mortality rate at three months. And in our trial in the control arm, it was around 15%. So I think yeah, it just shows how selective we are. But the, as I feel like as investigators, they should know better, right? I mean... Yeah. And, and and that's fair. I think it just I mean, shows why, how... Like if, if you're running a clinical trial, why not base your estimates on estimates derived from other clinical trials? I mean, I, I saw that in their manuscript and I didn't pull that original paper, but I don't think it was a clinical trial. No, it, it was a retrospective. So, uh, I mean, that's that's really, frankly, a foolish thing to do. All right. Should we move on to the first trial? Yeah. Yeah. So um, this was published in Lancet in 1996. Um, Andrew, why don't you give us a, a rundown of what you think the big teaching points are? But, you know, I guess to me, the main teaching point is that in patients who have NSTEMI or unstable angina, that anticoagulation be it with low molecular weight heparin or even with heparin, although in this trial, it's Um, 
does confer a small uh, benefit in terms of reducing uh, reinfarction. Now, the primary endpoint in this trial was a composite of death or new myocardial infarction over the first six days. Um, and there was a statistically significant reduction in the primary endpoint, 1.8% um, versus 4.8%. Um, it was highly statistically significant, and it was driven entirely by the endpoint of uh, myocardial infarction, um, which was 1.4% versus 4.4%. And there was no difference uh, in death between groups. Um, and so you have a, a, a benefit uh, in terms of reducing um, reinfarction during those six days. But you have to counter that against a significant increase uh, in bleeding. And, and minor bleeding occurred in 8.2% of patients in the Delta parent group versus 0.3% uh, of patients uh, in the control group. Um, I think that is sort of common sense. Um, there, you're, there's going to be a trade-off when it comes to reduction of, of sort of thromboembolic events or atherogenic thrombotic events and, and bleeding events. Um, and so I think that the trial is an important trial because um, this is still a practice that is common today, although not exactly as it was administered in the FRISC trial. Um, but we still use anticoagulation as part of the cornerstone of medical management of patients with acute coronary syndrome. Um, you know, nowadays we do it for about 48 hours. Um, but so, you know, it does, I think, speak to that practice uh, and provide some evidence for it. But I think we have to be uh, sort of reasonable and understanding that it is a small benefit and that there's probably people, a lot of patients, particularly older patients and patients who are more frail and fragile and susceptible to um, adverse events that probably don't benefit at all and they, they may be harmed and we should be careful about it. So, for example, you know, a 90-year-old frail patient who comes in with uh, acute coronary syndrome, um, you probably need to be really cautious about uh, treating them with anticoagulation. And maybe if it's a patient who's never even been on aspirin before um, and they're given aspirin for the first time in their life and they're loaded with aspirin and they're pain-free, you know, maybe this isn't something that you need to do. And I think right. that uh, I would, I would be, um, I would apply it to most patients, but my enthusiasm to just do it in, in everybody is, is, is not there. So one of the things that we were talking about before we went online was that this is, um, Delta Perrin is certainly different than IV heparin and, when I was going through cardiology, everything was IV heparin. And did did I'm asking this question? I don't know. Did we just translate trials like this to IV heparin? Because it seems to me that IV heparin uh, might not be might be more difficult to use. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, I think that that's that that's possibly true. I can't say a hundred percent. We actually still use IV heparin at my institution. Our our protocol calls for IV heparin. Um, it's a, it's something that's sort of automatically uh, monitored by clinical pharmacy, um, and it's very commonly the case that PTTs are either subtherapeutic or um, super therapeutic, and you wonder about, you know, the efficacy and safety of that. And would it would it be better if, you know, they were just on a weight-based dose of low molecular weight heparin? Um, I suspect that there's trials that address this. I just don't have them off the tip of my tongue. And I, I for the sake of, you know, what we've indexed so far, I don't have any as part of the seminal trials in this particular section, maybe it, it would be worth um, looking into that after this and seeing if there are any trials that specifically address that issue in this patient population of, of heparin versus low molecular weight heparin. I, I don't, I don't know. I suspect there probably are. Okay. And I suspect that they're probably equivalent. Another question I had is if you're looking at a six day endpoint at in 1996, um, how, how easy is it to determine recurrent myocardial infarction at that time in the setting of someone who had a, a big MI? I mean, could some of these, I mean, is that a, is that like a, difficult thing to sort out or is it like someone comes in with an MI and then like day five they have another MI yeah I suspect that it is it is a difficult thing to sort out I know that the investigators address that sort of limitation in in the method section of the manuscript um and I remember thinking that I felt like their handling of it was reasonable, which is why I didn't call attention to it in the review itself. Um, but it certainly is a softer endpoint relative to death, for example. And you wonder about um, the ability to adjudicate that, especially in patients where where the providers are probably not blind to the intervention that they're receiving, right? Right. Well, now I, I will say though, I'm sorry, um, that there this was a placebo-controlled trial, so the so the providers were blind to it, and presumably again the endpoint adjudication committee was as well. This wasn't something where people were like getting heparin and having PTTs monitored. Okay. So I yeah, mean. The- I, yeah, so the other I guess the other the other question I had is that any other striking thing in 1996 patients coming in mean age 69 years so not young not super young people and the mortality at 6 days only 1.1% and maybe that's why a 3% reduction in MI isn't you know isn't statistically significant death the hazard ratio for death was 12% lower with the Delta parent, but it was 0.9 versus 1.1. So again, speaking to a pretty, um, uh, to me, kind of surprisingly low um, uh, death rate from MI, especially at, at age 69. 
Right. Well, I mean, you have to remember that this is a dif different population than most of the MI trials that we've reviewed, where the majority of patients had ST segment elevation, MIs, and Q wave infarcts. So these patients, you know, you got to take all of them out. And these okay. are just patients with NSTEMI and also with, with just unstable angina. So there was patients could get into this trial that didn't even have infarcts. So okay. I, in light of that, I think the event rate does make, does make sense. Okay. Okay. Good point. What do you guys think of the, I mean, patients now, they get diagnosed with MI based on high sensitivity troponin, which goes up quickly with any event, even smaller events. Do you think the results of this trial will apply to this population? Well, it's a great question. Um, I would think that, you know, all of the patients in this trial that ended up being diagnosed with unstable angina would probably rule in, in this day and age. And then the question is how many people that wouldn't even be included in this trial would necessarily, you know, rule in. And I'd say, you know, there's probably a big bucket of patients that would. Um, and I don't know the answer to that. And I think that it probably makes sense in the contemporary era that we have to reconsider some of these interventions um, and trials in patients who, who are ruling in with high sensitivity troponin without, let's just say without electrocardiographic changes. Yeah. Um, or of the troponin elevation is only mild if it's not significantly elevated because we see it, we see mild elevation of the troponin not infrequently nowadays. Uh, so, Right, right. And it's interesting that when you go back to some of the literature in the NSTEMI population and particularly when you go back to some, and we'll review this at another time, when you look at some of the trials that were early versus conservative or early versus delayed strategy for patients with NSTEMI unstable angina, you know, go to the cath lab early versus later, not at all. The patients, whenever they were sort of subject to subgroup analysis, oftentimes there was a distinction where patients, there was a benefit if they had elevated troponin or positive electrocardiographic changes, but not if they, if they didn't. And now knowing that, you know, many of those patients who would have been in the, you know, negative troponin category would now be in the positive troponin category. It certainly um, is, is worth, you know, rethinking some of that. Yep, I agree. We also had a question in the chat that I think is a good question. It's asking about uh, the applicability of the trial of the trial since patients were given low molecular weight heparin for thirty-five to forty-five days after going home, but now we don't do that. Now we only give it while in the hospital. Well, so I guess there's two. Uh, you know the two aspects of that one that yeah i mean i don't know what the 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 bit the bit about continuing the intervention for 45 days um doesn't really seem to have a lot of contemporary relevance 
Um, but that being said, um, I still look at the primary endpoint here was at six days. And, and so I, I still think we can glean useful information from this at looking at, at that primary endpoint and put, and, and thinking about it in the context of our current sort of strategy of treating patients with anticoagulation for let's say 48 hours, even though it's, it's not, you know, it's not exactly the same. But don't you think we don't use anticoagulation long-term after these acute coronary syndromes because these endpoints at 40 days and 150 days were negative? Sure. I mean, I realize that they're not the primary endpoint, but they they were not different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you could make that case, certainly. All right. I think this was a good discussion. I learned a lot. Yeah, I did too. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and I and, and I'm gonna try to post that um put a note up on our Substack, maybe um uh one after this is is posted on Monday with that with the link to that uh Correct. review I talked about stress hyperglycemia. This was an excellent discussion. Thank you for listening, everyone. Stay tuned for our next episode. Don't forget to follow and rate us. It will make it easier for others to find our podcast.